Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Full Power Manhood Unleashed podcast where we lead men in ardently pursuing a loving God and help men live every day to the full in Jesus. So, uh, so thankful to have my new acquaintance on with us, Bob Machen today. He's from Gideon's International and he's going to be hanging out with us sharing his Jesus story and uh, you don't want to miss it. So stick around. Here we go. Bob, how's it Andrew. going, buddy? Fine, sir. Thank <laughs> well, you for having me on today. Oh, you're most welcome. You're most welcome. I appreciate you carving out the time and making it happen, man. We're we're excited to have you. Thank you. So uh, um, before we kind of get into things, I'll do a quick community update, let the guys know kind of what's going on. So um, good news, guys. We still are on track for the um, small group launch on April 21st. Uh, that is the Thursday after Easter, so uh, mark your calendars. We're excited about that and uh, um, looking forward to uh, really kind of being able to offer the discipleship and the accountability that we haven't been able to through the podcast medium and stuff like that. So be looking out for that. Um, it's coming down the pike here in Hendersonville, and we're also toying with the idea of doing a live stream and or a secondary location here in Arden. So uh, could be exciting things coming down the road, depending on what kind of, um, initial launch we have. So good things. Um, and then also if you get a chance, check out the website, we've got some new ways to engage. Um, we've actually added a prayer request feature now. Um, we wanted to make sure that prayer is always the front and center of uh, what we're doing, that everything is covered in, uh, going before God's throne and making sure that he's in the middle of everything. So if you guys have any prayer requests or any praises, anything you want to celebrate, hit us up on the website. There's a prayer tab there now. Um, also, we have a one-on-one -on -one chat tab. So if you have anything um, that you would need uh, just to talk to somebody about, you want a listening ear, whatever, uh, we're here for you guys so you can engage us that way as well. So new stuff, uh, exciting stuff, and uh, you know, good stuff coming down the pike for the ministry. I'm excited. That does sound good. Yeah. I'm excited for y'all. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Well, Bob, uh, I tell you what, um, you mind praying us in, sir? Not at all. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. And Father, we do come into your presence today just recognizing that you are holy, holy, holy. Father, also acknowledging that it's only through the shed blood of, of Christ, his finished work at Calvary, that brings us and gives us total, complete and full access to your Holy of Holies. Father, thank you for the privilege of prayer. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Father, thank you that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and that you have chosen us that we should go forth and bear fruit. Thank you, Father, too, that you've equipped us and to, to, to accomplish the work that you've called us to do and that you've not finished the work yet. And you will continue to do the willing and the doing of your good pleasure in our lives. Father, just thank you for your faithfulness. We just thank you for this time and this opportunity. And we, in Christ's name, we ask that you be honored and lifted up and, and glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Bob. Mm -hmm. All right, man. So uh, let's, let's hear about it. How is, what, what is your Jesus story and, and where does it start? Where does the narrative begin? Andrew, I appreciated when you first told me that the primary objective is just that, our Jesus story, our testimony. 
And it gives me great joy because it's a Jesus story. And uh, probably like a lot of the fellows that are watching this podcast, I was raised in a Christian home. And uh, being now in my later 60s, um, I came from that baby boom generation. And there's a big distinction between generations over the years. And uh, my father and my mother were born just before the Great Depression. So their childhood was greatly overshadowed by the Great Depression. And to hear them relate those stories of the hardships, the loss of employment, the closing of businesses, the necessity to, to garden and to can and to be self-sufficient, and then to have been raised by, my, by their parents who had come through World War I. See, both of my granddads fought in World War I and, um, you know, very difficult conditions. And that shaped those generations. That had an indelible impact on them. Mm-hmm. And they, as, as a result, passed a lot of that on to the next generation and so forth and so on. So I do think there's no, in my life, that the Jesus story would actually go back even to those that went before me. And uh, those were men that were godly men uh, and godly mothers, grandmothers. And uh, it, that was, that was a, a, a lintage, a heritage that's, that's very treasured by me. Um, my, my grandfather, Machen, was a very strong man physically and was the top bare-fisted boxer in his cl- company from South Carolina. And when he went off to World War One, he was a part of the American troops that broke through the Siegfried or Hindenburg defenses. And that was a massive offensive by American troops where we threw tens of thousands of troops at those defenses and lost tens of thousands of men. And uh, my granddad, being not real tall, but just being very strong, they made him a medic because he could go out into no, into the no man's land and pick up the wounded and the dead and carry them back. And after watching the movie, uh, uh, Hacksaw Ridge, I asked my dad, I said, dad, how many wounded and, and dead bodies did, uh, granddad bring back off the battlefield? And my dad says, Bob, he brought back hundreds and hundreds. And of course it had an impact on him with that kind of and he was in the trenches in France for months and was mustard gas three times and so forth and so on. And then my dad went off to World War II as a 17-year-old. He went off to the Marine Corps and uh, was shipped, shipped to the Pacific. But he, they, his a drill sergeant in boot camp singled him out and sent him off to mechanic school because he did show some aptitude for mechanics. So the airplane mechanic school held him back from the off the, the island hopping. Mm-hmm. And, and so, it, so he was just at the very tail end of, of those campaigns. So he didn't see action. He would have, if they had just sent him on over, mm-hmm. but you know, these were men that stepped up to the call of duty mm-hmm. and they felt very, very, very strong spirit of patriotism yeah. and, um, and great sacrifice and great duty. And those are some of the attributes that we've really lost over subsequent generations. Uh, that sense of responsibility and duty is why we refer to that generation, this World War II generation, 
as the greatest generation. And, um, and I had a father that he related to me how when he was going off to World War II, his parents gave him a little New Testament, a little Gideon New Testament that I've got here. That's the one. That's the one. Oh, my goodness. And his parents wrote a real special little note in here to their son who was going off. And then in the very back, there's several pages where he's got the islands in the Pacific that he was on and when he was there. And he also had put his own name in the back of the little New Testament where he was rededicating his life to the Lord. Mm. And this little New Testament kept him through some very trying, difficult times of being away from home knowing that you could be in harm's way, et cetera. And, uh, but my granddad, before my, my dad went off to, to war, he re- related some stories about his time in France. And he says, Bob, I want you to know that when we were in France, in those trench warfares, it, the conditions were deplorable beyond imagination. So when the men had leave and could go into Paris, there were a lot of women that were throwing themselves at the American men because in France they had lost close to a million men. And so there were not that many men for the available women. And if they could maybe have an American soldier, take them back to the United States, that was a very high priority. Mm -hmm. And so these men would go into Paris and would have all types of exploitations and come back and brag about what all had gone on and, all their supposed great exploits. But my granddad, because he had already committed his life to the Lord and was a Christ follower, and, and he stayed true to his, his, his wife, his marriage, and so forth. And he told my father, he says, son, he says, you want to be able to come back from war and look at your wife in the face and say, I was faithful. And it will not mean quite as much to her as it, as you know that it means. And he says, but your witness, your testimony is who you are. And my dad went off to World War II. And when they got over into Japan, wartime conditions are very similar no matter where you are in the world. And um, he just said that God's word, you know, staying with his Christian faith, kept him through some very, very serious times of temptation. Yeah but he kept his testimony, stayed strong and was able to come back and what a difference that made. And so those are stories that have been passed down from generation to generation of God fearing men that were strong men, physically Mm -hmm. strong men, physically men of great courage and great bravery, but men of also a very strong Christian testimony and witness. Mm -hmm. So I had that as a father and as a grandfather and, uh, the women in my life, I could never really understand the women's lib thing because the women in my life were strong women. Mm -hmm. They could do anything. They could run businesses, run the households. They had to, Mm -hmm. when you come through the depression, you didn't have a choice of I'm going to do this. or I'm not going to do that. You had to do whatever had to be done. Mm -hmm. And when I was growing up, one thing you never said around the household is, well, I don't want to do that. I mean, you were going to go to the back bedroom real quick and find out that you really do want to do it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yep. It was a very disciplined lifestyle mm-hmm. and they had to be 
And it was not about what you wanted to do or didn't want to do. It was what you had to do and what you were asked to do. And so I grew up in a home where mom and dad um, lived out their Christian faith. Of course, it was, they were humans. They made plenty of mistakes. My dad, and he's 96 years old and still perking along. Wow. Still walking a half a mile a day. And whenever he talks about his Marine Corps, and he went back into the Korean War into the Air Force. Mm -hmm. They needed his skill sets in the Air Force at that time. And so you can always tell he kind of swells up with pride because of, you know, it's taken those stepping up to defend our country and so forth. And, um, but, yeah, so growing up in a home where my dad was trying to lead his family into the Christian ways, some of the things my dad did is he did have a discernment about picking good churches for us to go to. Mm-hmm. And first and foremost was, are they really preaching the word? And are they not trying to be politically correct? Back then it wasn't so much about political correctness, but it was still watering the gospel down. He wanted a church that was going to really preach the, the word mm-hmm. and, uh, and not just pick hot subjects or things that were socially acceptable or whatever. But so it was really interesting as a young man, there was one time when we moved to a new city, I wanted to go to another church because of the active scout troop that was there and, uh, asked my parents and we went to visit the church, but we came back and dad just says, no, we're not going to go to that church because he could tell it was more of a social gathering, more of a social gospel. And was the kind of the who's what of the community and not really about unadulterated preaching of the gospel. And that made a big impact on me. And as we were children growing up, it was intermittent, but there were times when we would have our family devotions and it was a non-negotiable. Of course, we kids were kind of dragging our feet, but we would have our devotion time. Now, back then we were trying to read out of the King James Bible, which was very difficult. And, uh, but we actually would go to our knees and pray once we got through reading our scripture. And I can, those were just indelible in my mind as far as remembering those times as a young, you know, nine, 10, 11 year old having those family devotions. And as far as Christ, I was always going to church even before I was born. And, um, but I can remember as a nine year old in church on a Sunday morning and, and Andrew, I was minding my own business. I wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary, but God showed up and convicted this young nine-year-old boy. And all of a sudden, I realized, Andrew, that I was a sinner. Even as nine years old, it wouldn't be beyond me at all to, to tell the truth or even tell a lie Yeah, if it could save my rear end. Yeah. And, and I would take things sometimes that weren't mine. And, oh, you know, selfishness, all the things that young kids do. Yeah. And, uh, but God just really convicted me that I was a sinner. And he showed me, too, that Christ had died for my sins and that I could have a personal relationship. I could confess my sins. I could ask. I could accept what Christ had done for me. I could ask him to come into my life to save me and to be my Lord. And uh, I felt compelled that Sunday morning. I told my mom who was standing beside me I needed to go down front. She was a bit shocked, but she was not going to hold me back. And uh, she realized that, you know, God will just touch someone. And so I went on down front, 
dedicated my life to the Lord, asked him to save me, forgive me, so forth. Counseled with the pastor about reading my Bible and having prayer time. And, but something had changed. Something had changed. Um, I have dyslexia, and that's something that you're just born with and you learn to deal with it. And uh, it's got good sides to it and, and difficult things. Uh, Albert Einstein was severely dyslexic, so it's, it's, it doesn't mean anything to do with the IQ, but it just means you have a challenge in processing words. Mm-hmm. Usually someone can overcome that in the fourth, fifth, or sixth grade if they haven't given up on school. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem with a lot of young boys, especially have a much higher rate of dyslexia. They will have given up by then. And I had repeated the second grade. I, I should not have even gone to school. My birth date was one week before the cutoff. Nowadays, it'd keep you back, especially if you're a boy. But luckily, you know, my faith in the Lord, I began to ask God to help me in school because I was still just getting by in school. And I can remember very distinctly going to bed one night shortly after coming to Christ and going to school that God got me up and convicted me that I had not done my homework neatly. Mm. I had done it, but I just was trying to get it done. So I, I redid my homework so it was neat and went back to bed. And that happened one more time where he says, no, you didn't do it neat enough. So it, he was convicted me of my study habits, and I began to improve. And it took a couple of three years, but I became a, a good student and was able to go on through college and all, but with dyslexia, it's still a challenge. You have to, it's, it's a, it takes me twice as long to read something as someone else. I just was fortunate to have good comprehension and good retention and made pretty good grades. But I got on up into high school, even though my walk with the Lord as a 9, 10, 11-year-old was pretty close, I began to hang out with the wrong, the wrong gang. And uh, into high school, um, began to, go out to parties, and one thing led to another. And during that time, I also had gotten very active in Boy Scouts as an 11-year-old, really enjoyed scouting. Um, Even by the time I reached 13, I had earned my eagle after even taking a year out of scouting to build a soapbox derby and competed in South Carolina and that. But before I was over through with my scouting, I had – earned 63 merit badges, which would give you Eagle three times over. Wow. Had my God and country. So I was really, really enjoyed scouting. Worked at the Boy Scout camp for three summers in a row. And so that was a big part of my life. Mm-hmm. And at that time, scouting was still old school scouting. There were no women in Boy Scouts. Our Boy Scout camp, there was only two women. One was our, our black cook, Velma, who was a sweetheart. She ran a tight ship. She had retired from the military. And she loved her boys, but she ran a tight ship in that, ki- that kitchen. And then the director's wife, that was it. Mm-hmm. So we, it was just a real haven for boys. Mm-hmm. And we fought and we ran and it was just wide open boy stuff from can to can't. Yep. And uh, we were in great shape and could have gone on off into the military and probably survived very well. Because that summer camp was a rough, rough place as far as just boys being boys. Yep. And we've lost that. Mm-hmm. And I was really on the tail end of that. And what a phenomenal experience to be around men that allowed boys to be boys. And if there was a disagreement, they'd break out the boxing gloves or 
throw out the mats on the floor and you'd wrestle. You know, you just got to be boys, and it was a wonderful time. But in high school, I began to fall away from the Lord and actually got into to smoking pot at a fairly early age mm-hmm. with the influence of uh, my older brother and some others. that, And, um, and so I, I really had gotten into the party scene pretty heavy. And the drinking and the smoking of pot was came into my high school very strong during the late 60s and early 70s. Started getting into rock music and being near Atlanta. Uh, my very first concert I ever went to was to go to see um, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. And, the, and yes, back them up. So just, you know, I can just name other concerts, Jethro Tull and others. So we were really into the rock scene. Yeah. And, um, but at the same time, I knew that I was not pleasing the Lord, but I was still pursuing the things the world was offering and enjoying it, having a good time. I began to, I'd made some drug contacts with, through a fellow that was a hardcore druggie, but I was just going to buy pot and we'd make drug runs. And, uh, I just go buy a brick of, of marijuana. And those guys would be buying heroin and LSD and everything else. But I just would buy a brick of pot I'd split it up, sell off half, and smoke the other half. And back then, you couldn't get good weed very easily. But our contacts, it was some serious stuff. And so I limited who I'd work with. If I didn't know someone, I wouldn't, you know, just, it was just for my own use. But nonetheless, I just got heavier and heavier into that scene. One day, we had come back from a drug run, and we'd been smoking. And uh, the fellow we had gone, the contact we had made, was pretty high level. He could tell he was way on up into the drug scene and his connections. And when we walked into his apartment, there must have been six or eight people in the living room with needles hanging out of their arm on a heroin trip. That kind of freaked me out. I was a small country town boy, just wanted to get some pot, and this was heavy-duty stuff. But we came back into my hometown in Georgia, and when we pulled into town. There were some one-way streets. Mm-hmm. And when we came into the one-way circle that goes around the courthouse, a Georgia Bureau of Investigation truck car pulled in front of us, a GBI, and a GBI car pulled in behind us. As soon as we came through the traffic light, one got in front of us and one got behind us. And I've, been doing, I've done a lot of prison and jail ministry since my college days. And I asked guys in the prisons and jails, I say, I was in the back seat. I says, what was I doing? And they'll all say, you were praying. I says, you betcha. I says, I certainly couldn't eat all this stuff. And it wouldn't look too good if I was trying to throw it out the window. So I was back in that back seat saying, Lord, Lord, if you will get me through this, you and me, Lord, you and me, just get me through this. Because I think I was 17 at the time. If I'd gotten busted in that small country town at that time, it had been front page for months. And here I was, a church-going family kid, dealing with drugs. Even though I had just pot, everything else we had in that car, they would have thrown the keys away. There'd have probably been no bell. Or if it was, it had been sky high. And my dad would have let me sit there. He was yeah. not, my dad would not have just bailed me out. Yep. He'd say, son, you're at the wrong place doing the wrong thing. 
you're going to see where it's going to take you. And, uh, but we went a block and the GBI agent in front of us turned off and we kept going straight. And the one behind us turned off. And I, I tell the guys in the prison, I says, what was I doing 30 minutes later? And they all laugh and yuck it up. And they said, you were getting high. I said, you're right. I thought I was being cool, but I was the biggest fool there was. I says, God was giving me a, a real warning signal. What would be the odds of that ever happening? Yeah. I mean, God was giving me a warning. And, and yet I went on for the rest of the high school, went on off to college, smoking pot every day. I'd gone, I'd smoked pot every day for well over a year, still functioning as a student. And uh, when I, of course, went off to college, I went to all the beer rushes, the, cause it's a, you know, fraternity beer rushes. I wasn't planning on joining any of them, but I'd sure drink their beer and just, just partying and trying to balance college life and academics and not letting ac- academics get in the way of my education. But a, a gentleman one day, uh, it was in the early, early spring or late winter, there was a gentleman that was in front of the library at, at, the, at school there at Georgia Southern. And I would study on Friday afternoons because nobody was doing anything until seven or eight o'clock at night on Friday. So I'd go ahead and study all Friday afternoons because I knew I wasn't going to be much good until Sunday sometime. And uh, so I came out of the library late that Friday afternoon and there was a gentleman standing there and he had come just for the purpose of trying to witness to college kids. And he struck up a conversation and I was trying to be polite, talk to him. And he asked me, he said, son, if you were to die today, do you know that you'd go to heaven? And I had backslidden so far that much of my earlier walk with the Lord was a distant memory, a very distant memory. And, um, And so in my mind, I didn't know that anyone could know that they would go to heaven. I wasn't going to treat the man disrespectful, but in my heart, I said, you know, nobody can know that. You just die and hope you make it. And he says, son, no. He says in 1 John 5, 13, he says, these things I have written unto you who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you might know that you have eternal life. And that's the most absolute knowing in the Greek language. There's four or five words for knowing. He said, that's an experiential knowing. He said, you can know it. And in my mind, in my heart, I said, okay, whatever. He says, son, how long has it been since you felt God drawing you? I said, it's been a while. I had uh, had a friend of mine was killed in a car accident. Uh, they skipped school, went down to Callaway Gardens for the day, I was with them before school started and it was a flip of the coin that kept me out of that car because my, one of my friends and I had to go to work that afternoon. And so if, if I won, I was going to Callaway gardens. If he won, you know, so one of us had to stay back. So I, I lost the flip and I stayed, stayed at school and so forth. They had an accident and one of my best friends was killed. And during that time, God was dealing with me. Yeah. But there again, I knew that, if I resisted his drawing, that eventually I could keep on doing what I was doing. I could harden my heart. And that was exactly what had happened. It took about six weeks to get my heart hard enough to where I was right back where I was pursuing my own worldly pleasures. So I told the man, I said, it's been quite a while since I've sensed anything from the Lord. And he warned me. He says, Bob, he says, young man, he said, 
God's under no obligation to keep drawing you. It says in Genesis, my spirit will not strive with man continually. He says, that's a very dangerous position. He says, will you do two things for me? And I said, well, okay. He said, would you promise this? And I said, okay. He says, in the next week or two, I'm going to ask you to get alone in a quiet place and just ask God to show himself to you. He said, just say, God, if you're there, show me. If, if there's a God, if you're there, just show me. And he said, and secondly, I want you to ask God to show you that you need him. Will you do those two things? God, show me if you're real and show me that I need you. And I says, okay. The conversation wound it up, and I just kind of went on and really didn't think much about that for almost two weeks. And all of a sudden, that promise came back to mind. And I was at a place where I could be alone, so I just went ahead and prayed. Okay, God, if you're there, I want to really know. And also, Lord, I want to know that I need you. Because I didn't feel like I needed anybody. I could do anything as well as most people and better than most and as well as anybody else. Just pride. And, uh, but God began to work. He began to show me how empty all the things of this world were. Dating pretty girls. I was dating a girl that was a captain of the cheerleaders in high school. And, you know, oh, no, no. Uh, I, could, I could fit in with the fraternity guys. I could fit in with the potheads. I could fit in with the athletes because I was fairly decent. So I had just a bunch of different groups I could hang out with. But everything went empty just had no purpose at all. And then God began to just continue to show me how I needed him and that he was real. I had a dream one night, my brother and his group, he had, my brother had just come to the little Lord. He was at Mars Hill college and his college group was going off to Vera beach, Florida on spring break to do street evangelism or beach beach evangelism. And he asked me to come join him. Well, I really wasn't that keen on, you know, getting around a bunch of spiritual people, a bunch of Jesus freaks. But uh, that the night before I was, uh, had been invited to go, I had a dream, and I had a dream that I was held up at gunpoint by a black person. And not that I was, I, we were trained not to be racist growing up, you know, social, economic. The, the one tough thing for my dad was with the Japanese because he was fighting them in the Pacific. He, he struggled in that area, but he still was teaching us that we yep. still love them, yep. even though they were my arch enemies and, uh, and respect them. But um, so I told my roommate, I said, man, I had a dream that I was held up at gunpoint. And it was just very vivid. And he said, I wouldn't go this weekend. And so I went to my post office. My excuse was I didn't, have, didn't know how to get there. Got to the post office, and there was a map in there for Magic Marker Line from Georgia Southern to Vera Beach. So I says, okay, I'll go. But right at the Georgia-Florida line, I was driving back roads to, from Statesboro to get down, and I, there was a young black man hitchhiking. So I stopped to pick him up, find out where he was wanting to go, and another black fellow jumped out behind a car and jumped in the back seat. And the Lord had blocked that dream out of my mind. We got on down near St. Augustine. I had just tanked up the car, got back in the car, and began to realize that their story just wasn't caught. It wasn't jiving. And, and about that time, I remembered the dream. 
and it wasn't two seconds later the guy in the back seat pulled a pistol out and put it to the back of my head and it was shaking all over the back of my head and he wanted me to take the next exit and there was a, a, a dirt sand road frontage road and he had me exit off go down the frontage road for about a mile and then it went off into the woods and I, I, I realized then that God was really speaking and because I told my brother that if he gave Paul a road to Damascus, he could give me one. I don't recommend y'all ever praying that prayer. But uh, it was very clear. So I started witnessing to the young men. I said, y'all don't need to do this. I said, because they were, they were fairly young. One was 16, one was 17. I said, this will be on your permanent record. You stole a car. I said, I'll take you wherever you want to go. I says, don't do this. And the guy in the front seat, changed his mind, but the guy in the back seat even put the gun on him. He said, no, you with me. So they took me on down the road, dropped me out, and they wanted my wallet. And I said, look, guys, I, I'll give you some of my money, but I've got to have some money to get on a bus. So I gave him most of my money, which wasn't a whole lot as a, as a college kid, kept my wallet and, and a little bit of money, and they took off in my car. Well, I ran. I was a pretty good runner, so I ran back up mile, a couple of miles to the filling station, called the police, they came out and picked me up to me at the police station, and uh, I got a trip. I got a ride on a bus down to the Vera Beach, and 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 that that night, Saturday night, I, I rededicated my life to the Lord at their at their program and went down and shared my testimony. And the people in the audience thought I made the whole thing up because <laughs> it was pretty land, outlandish. Well, they they found my car that night parked in front of a little country church way out in the middle of nowhere. They had blown the engine up and the car just coasted in Mm. to that little church. Mm. And the police called my parents and told them they found the car. My dad came down and got it, took it back to Noonan and had the engine repaired. But that began a, 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 a journey. And I had also, when I got back from Vera Beach, I got alone up on a building and I just confessed my sins to the Lord again, just privately. And I said, Lord, you know, please forgive me. I know that I have totally rebelled against you and on and on. I said, please forgive me. Come into my life and come into my heart. And there was a tremendous peace that came over me. And I just, a release, because I'd finally just given up running. And um, I remember just within a moment, I says, God, I can't make it six months because I was still heavy into the pot scene. And I, I started getting more honest, and I says, Lord, I can't make it six weeks. And I started getting more honest, and I says, Lord, I don't even think I can make it six days. And then I really got honest, and I says, Lord, I don't even know if I can make it six hours. And just as clear as everything, he says, I know it. <laughs> he says, you can't. I was a little set back that he had such little faith in me. But I said, yeah. And he says, but I can. Yep. Amen. And when he said that, I says, ah, well, you're going to have to. He says, I know. <laughs> so not only did I gain my salvation at that time or reaff- reaffirm my salvation, I was actually able to depend on him to live the Christian life. Mm-hmm. I got set free from a lot of things. Now, I still had a ton of baggage that he had to really work on. You know, I'd been obviously in you know, pornography for years in scouting in college and on and on. 
And so there's lots of things he had to clean up in my life and still working on me. But I went to the Bill Gothard Institute in Basic Youth Conflicts that summer. And that old boy nailed me on every topic. He wasn't talking to any of the other 16,000 people in that auditorium. He was talking to me. And uh, every night that week, God was dealing with me. And I was able to let go of a lot of stuff that, um, that helped really set me free. Well, went back to college the next year, began to get involved in Christian things, Campus Crusade for Christ, and it wasn't long before we started having a Bible study in my room every night at 9 o'clock. We are going to start at 9, no chit-chat. If you want to chit-chat, stay around later, but we're going to pray. And um, the group grew. It was kind of waning, ebb and, ebb and flow, but people would show up at 9, we'd pray. I'd leave the room to go study if I needed to, and the guys wanted to stay around and talk they could. And then on well, several months into this, we decided on Thursday night just to praise the Lord. We're not going to keep asking for everything. We're just going to thank him and praise him. And if anyone asked for something, we all had pillows, and we could hit them with the pillows. And Because uh, it's hard to pray and not ask for something. It's tough just to give thanks and praise. But you, you can get good at it if you work at it. But so, And we also had some hymn books with, get, that were down in the lobby. So we started singing hymns. And it, it sounded pretty rough. It sounded like a bunch of old calves, dying calves in a thunderstorm, as my mother would say. But it was just a lot of fun. And then one of the fellows had a very strike of genius, stroke of genius about, we ought to invite girls to join us on Thursday nights. Well, it was unanimous on that. So we went to the lobby of, the, of our dorm, which was a good-sized lobby. And within no time, we filled that lobby up in a good-sized room beside the lobby. And it was springtime by then, so we went out onto a big uh, circle there at the college. And within just two or three weeks, we had 350 people there, a big group, praising the Lord, worshiping. But it became more of a boy-meet-girl thing than it was really a spiritual event. It kind of lost its. So we went inside, got back to just praying and waiting on the Lord. And God did some neat things through the next couple of years. We averaged about 165 people every Thursday night. And our goal was to go back into Campus Crusade, BSU, and these other groups because we met on the one night that nobody else was meeting. So we could go back and minister in those other groups and try to build them up. And God just moved in mighty ways. He would always, there was kind of a group of us guys that were leaders, and he would show us who was supposed to speak and even what they were supposed to speak on. And I'd go and talk to a fellow and say, what did God show you? And they'd look shocked, and they'd say, well, yeah, he just told me to do this. And I'd say, I thought so. And the girls, God would lead them to write songs that were on the same message that we were supposed to speak on. And then, and God would put it on the, on the girls' hearts to start praying for certain sub- subjects and topics, and he would lead us. So it was interesting how he was working. And there were a few times when he had not told us anything, which was very rare, but we'd get close to Thursday night, and I hadn't felt anything, no one else. And we'd say, well, we'll just go and wait on the Lord. And uh, we went, and every time that happened, the first time was a missionary, retired missionary that, that drove all the way up from Savannah over an hour's drive with his wife. And they were up in their late 80s or even early 90s. 
and they had said that God had told them to come. And we'd say, well, we sure had, we expected something because he hadn't told us anything. And so they would had, had come to share. And we had another missionary that had, re- <clears throat> had been on the Cherokee Reservation for 25 years, and he was pastoring a local church down there. And he showed up a couple of times when God had not shown us anything to do. When we left college, we turned that organ, that group over to Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and uh, it's still going on today. And so they stepped into the largest organization on campus and didn't have to build it. Pretty good thing. Yeah. But it, we knew it would be taken care of and, and well-directed. Well, when I graduated from college, I had an invitation to go with Sammy Tippett to Germany, Austria, and the Air, which is East Germany. And I had taken a couple of quarters of German and Sammy Tippett, God's love in action. He had been an evangelist in Europe for a number of years, although he was from Texas. He had many times gone behind the Iron Curtain to, to communist youth rallies and infiltrated youth rallies and would witness and even preach. And so I was very excited about that. I took a quarter, went a quarter off and just worked loading trucks to save the money to go. I just paid my own way and worked to do that. And for several months had memorized the four spiritual laws and the big question and, and songs in German. So we could converse in German reasonably well enough to present the gospel. And that was a neat summer. We were riding bicycles every day through these cities and all through Germany, Austria, and, and then through East Germany and uh, preaching on the streets. There were several times that was, wasn't unusual to have communist youth rallies in Lynn cities over there at the time. And Sammy would go up on the stage and stand bes- beside the speaker, letting the speaker know that once he finished, Sammy wanted to speak and he looked fairly hip, you know, and so forth fitting in. And the speaker would hand him the microphone, his free and Sammy would just start preaching the gospel. Mm-hmm. And they were so shocked. They didn't stop him. And he just yeah. go ahead and preach the gospel. Wow. And uh, we had tried to get into Poland or East Germany for almost a year and we're not able to get in. They wouldn't give us visas. So we went to East Berlin or West Berlin and went, you could go into East Berlin just for the daytime. And we got into East Berlin and went to the customs, the head of of the customs. And they thought we were cyclists, athletes. We all had matching bikes and matching outfits and in reasonably good shape. And so they get excited about sports, mm-hmm. sportifs. And so we, went to Dresden, Leipzig, and Erfurt, meeting with youth groups and churches in those areas. and uh, But we had to every day check in at a certain checkpoint for them to verify uh, everybody was there, passports. So every day we had a checkpoint at a certain time. But we camped out. We were camping at campgrounds the whole, the whole summer. One of the churches we went to in Dresden, we, we went to the youth leader's home or the young pastor's home, and we could tell when we got to the door, there's just a few of us went to the door that he was very, very, very scared. And he, he told us that we were going to have to leave, that we were not going to be able to have the program we had planned because the communist party had just approached him a short time, a week or so before because the his youth program was just going so well that they said, if you did not back off, that they were going to take his wife and his daughters and send them off to Siberia and he would never see them again. And uh, 
I won't go into all the details on what happens to those women when they're shipped off like that. But he was in East Germany. That was kind of the there were a number of things that communism would do to, to squelch Christianity. They're very fearful of Christianity. Uh, it's, it's known to be the strongest ideology to combat communism. So we're one of their primary targets. But we were able to meet with Christians and young people in Dresden and Leipzig and wonderful times with these young people that just had such a heart for Jesus and um, well, quite an experience. You know, came back, uh, went in, got to working, um, and it was not too long. I was in sales working for a company covering several states, and um, but my dad had joined the Gideon Ministry just a couple of years of me getting out of college. And my dad had always been active in church, taught junior high boys, um, picked up the widows, brought them to church, and took them back home every Sunday, not every other, every fourth, every Sunday. And he was deacon, yada, yada. But, you know, I never really saw my dad grow spiritually. Mm. He was very consistent. You know, anytime the church door opened, we were there, ever so forth. But when he joined the Gideons, it forced him out of his comfort zone. Mm-hmm. He became a church speaker. Only 20, 20% of our Gideons become church speakers, but that really stretched him big time. He got active in prison ministry, obviously out on college campuses and other places, witnessing, engaging the public. And um, over two years, I, my dad was a different man. And he invited me to come and hear what these Gideons were doing. And I heard about how they were on college campuses, in jails, prisons, schools, elementary schools. The list goes on. And sharing their faith, witnessing and passing out God's word. And to me, it was a no-brainer. God's already told us to do this. So I signed up, got involved, trained to be a church speaker, got involved. I was already doing some prison ministry, but got more involved in that. And, um, you know, it's just been, it's been 39 years now of serving the Lord in my church, but also out in the highways and by in the communities mm-hmm. through the Gideon ministry, uh, been a part of a lot of other ministries like evangelism explosion and so forth. Been to South America several times with, um, a group called, um, it was Emerson Ward project harvest. And we did film evangelism in South America, mm-hmm. hardcore film evangelism in schools, prisons, military bases. In Brazil, we saw over 6,500 people come to the Lord in two weeks with just a mission team of 18 people with five film crews. Just very, very productive. Been able to go back to Europe several times, preaching the gospel. Was able to go with the Gideons to Ghana, West Africa, just a few years ago. We had 24 Gideons from four countries, South Africa, Australia, Northern Ireland, the U.S., and we teamed up with the Ghana Gideons. And in two weeks, we preached the gospel in 936 schools, gave out 570,000 testaments, and saw way over 20,000 decisions made. And what a privilege to be able to preach the gospel see the Holy Spirit move with conviction that was heavy and then to usher in salvation that would end in just rejoicing and then to be able to just rejoice with these children about their 
the greatest day they've ever had. And uh, so God's been good. <clears throat> and Andrew, it's, it's his faithfulness, not mine. When Jesus comes back, his, his sash is going to say faithful and true. And it's his faithfulness in our lives if we will yield to him. And one of the opportunities, I had opportunities to preach in many schools, in South America, many military bases, but in, in West Africa, I spoke in one of the largest military schools, and it was the largest in that country, maybe one of the largest in all of Africa, over 4,500 students and staff. And as a young man, I'd have never dreamt of those opportunities or that I'd even be the, able to do it. But God can take us to places if we just say yes more than we say no. If we decide, if we'll allow ourselves to be pushed outside of our comfort zones. Mm -hmm. And I, I like men's groups, but it has to be a men group with a purpose more than just meeting. Yeah. That purpose is to change the world. Everything Jesus did was on the job training. He didn't have many holy huddles. <laughs> the crowds were too many. Yep. Only time they had a holy huddle is if they're on a boat trying to get across the, the Sea of Galilee. Yep. And then they had other obstacles. But it was on-the-job training. Mm -hmm. And we as men need to look at things that get us out of our churches. I'm not saying abandon the church. No, we need the church. But we need to invest as much or more time. We really need to be investing probably 80% of our ministry time needs to be in the world. And I, I, what burdens me is I talk to so many men and their response is, oh, I'm active in the church. And that breaks my heart because that's become really a cop-out. We need to teach. We need to do that. But, man, that needs to be a very small part of our Christian ministry. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's the Gideons International, we are a business professional men's organization. We need men that have managerial experience because our ministry is very management intensive. And we need men that have public relations skills because everywhere we go, if it's a college, I'm dealing with the president. Mm -hmm. If it's the hotels, motels, we're dealing with the executive directors of the finest hotels and motels in town, mm -hmm. school boards, wardens of prisons, uh, the top commanders of military bases. So we have to have men that have good public relations skills. One of the real joys of the ministry, the jail ministry and all has been very rewarding, but also the fact that we're out visiting our pastors and our churches. And to me, pastors are lonely and are hurting now more than any time in our lifetime. And to be able to go alongside a pastor and just encourage him, I'm going to have breakfast on Monday with a pastor, had scheduled breakfast last Thursday with another pastor. They're just, they're just lonely. They just need someone. So as a Gideon, it does give you a real good platform mm -hmm. to befriend and encourage our pastors. So anyone watching this that might be interested in knowing more what the Gideons are doing, yeah. I'd love to have them get in touch with me okay. and, uh, and talk about that. But we're in a time in America and in the world where men have got to step up. And we step up by taking personal responsibility for our own spiritual life. Mm -hmm. We must have quality, quiet times. Mm -hmm. 
And whatever the regiment is you do, I can't cover a whole lot of scripture in, a, in my quiet time because I'm meditating, praying, studying the notes. But I'm wanting that word to get inside my heart and change me. And I want to meditate on that word throughout the day. We've got to increase our prayer life to where it's more effectual. It's the effectual, fervent prayer of the righteous. And we need to pray more scripturally mm-hmm. and forget these little ditty, Lord, bless everybody and help everybody and give them a special blessing. We got to get down and, and, and not dirty, but we got to get down and serious yeah. with, with what we're doing as men. We need to step up with our family and lead our family. We need to make sure we're men of integrity and men of honor in our work endeavors. We need to keep short list of, of forgivenesses. We need to be quick to ask for forgiveness. We need to walk humbly, mm-hmm. humbly before our Lord, humbly before our family, and humbly with one another. And if we're in a situation that's not healthy, we just need to get out of it. We don't flirt with sin. And we need to be quick to confess. And um, the spiritual life is, is a is first confession. And that means that we totally agree with what God says about anything and everything. We're not defending it. We're not excusing it. We come in complete honesty and say, God, yeah, you said this about this. Mm-hmm. And then we need to be willing to repent, willing to change. Mm-hmm. Now, in our human strength, we're not able to. But if we're willing to, he's willing to help us. So we have to repent. And then that, and then we need to ask him to fill us with his spirit. And we're stepping off the throne of our life and asking Christ to be the throne on the throne of our life. And that's every day. You know, Lord, forgive me, cleanse me, and Lord, fill me. And daily, we need to be, be, be ye being filled. Mm-hmm. It's a daily thing. And if we'll walk humbly, repentant, asking him to fill us and to wash us and to renew us daily. You know, he will do his work in our lives. And we need to be willing to be as mature as possible. So many of our men are basically spiritual teenagers at best. Very few are are fathers and very few are grandfathers. But we can be spiritual grandfathers at a young age if we pursue that. So, so we need to just really pursue spiritual maturity. And uh, that's my challenge to men. And I was so fortunate to have those examples of men that were not just men's men, but men of great integrity, great honor, great devotion, great duty, and men of faith. And still to this day, in their, in their very weak ways, but you know, as far as just humanly speaking, still men of God. And um, so that, that would be my challenge. That's good. That's good, Bob. Appreciate you sharing your story, man. That's uh, <clears throat> it's, uh, very rich. It's very rich. And Andrew, I hope it's still just started, buddy. Oh. We got to finish this race strong. That's right. That's yeah, right. Let's, let's, let's all just finish this race strong. Back when I was in the 70s, one of the things you'd hear say so much, be real, man. Yeah. 
That was the thing. Just be real. Yeah. And we need to do that. Yeah. Yep. Real with ourselves, real with God, and real with one another. If we will just be real. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. <clears throat> we have so many things that, um, Ooh. you know, just kind of come at us from every different angle. Mm. And, uh, mm. I, I think one of the biggest challenges that guys face, um, in regard to being real is, uh, just the spirit of fear of mm. being fully known in front of God mm. and sitting with themselves and saying, you know, Lord, I'm not, I'm not hiding behind mm. anything. I'm not putting on any masks. Mm. I'm not putting on a show or a demonstration. This is where I am. This is who I am. I acknowledge who you are <laughs> and you can intersect where I'm at mm-hmm. and things will change. Yes. Yep. It's good, Bob. Hey, um, uh, man, I, I, I usually have like, Hey, let's do, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. And that was, I, I, and I, I cherish, I cherish your testimony, man. I do. Your story is, is uh, rich is the only word that ke- keeps coming back to mind. It's just so full. And I'm thankful that, that you shared it with us today. You know, it's been exciting, Andrew, and I hope that I can be open to God for the next chapter. Um, and I'm praying about that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, God's never called us to retire, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and I'm wanting this next chapter to maybe be at the next level. Mm-hmm. You know, God, so often the Abrahams, the Moseses, the on and on, those old boys, that, that last chapter was their, yep. their, their big chapter. Yep. And Let's don't sell God short. We serve a great God and he can do great things. And these are the times that require great things accomplished through our God. There was a very famous speaker that was speaking to an audience and the introduction was, they talked about this great man of God and he got up once the introduction was done and he says, folks, there are no great men of God. They're only men of a great God. That's right. And if we understand the greatness of our God, there's no limitations. We limit what God can do. Mm-hmm. And I pray that I won't do, you know, I'll, I'll say yes more than no. Yep. And so I just challenge everybody to say yes a, f- a few more times than you say no, and you'd be amazed what God will do. I tell you what, uh, Bob, you mind uh, praying us out? Not at all. Thank you. Not at all. Father, when we think of you as our heavenly Father, that you would even call us your children, your boys. Father, we want to be the kind of boys that you're proud of. Like old Job, when you said, hey, if you... Have you noticed Job over here? Father, we'd like to be that kind of son that you'd be proud of. And Father, we know that you have made that possible through the sacrifice of your son Jesus, through his death, burial, and his resurrection, 
And Father, even through his indwelling spirit, we have Christ in us, the hope of glory, and that we're in Christ. And greater is he that's within us than anything in the world. He's greater than our flesh. He's greater than this world. And Father, we, we want to be filled by, by your spirit and be more than conquerors. Lord, help us to take, set aside the weights that can so instantly and easily beset our race. Father, we confess these weights of worries and cares and the lust of other things and the lust of riches. Lord, the, the weeds and the thorns and the, that grow up in our lives and strangle your word. Father, root out these things, the rocks and the roots and the weeds, and cleanse us, Father. Wash us. Give us fertile hearts that your word can go deep within our hearts and bring forth a harvest. And Father, we want want to be a 30 or a 60 or even a hundredfold harvest. And Father, for your glory, for your honor, we rededicate our lives today to, to your indwelling spirit that you would be our Lord, you'd be our shepherd. May we Study your word and hide it in our hearts. May it be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Father, may we have a tremendous burden for a lost and dying world that would compel us to go out into the highways and byways and to compel them, compel others to come in. That your banquet table will be filled. Father, your calling is that we're to go Lord, may we be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bob, thanks again for joining us. Andrew, this has been a privilege. You keep up the good work too, brother. Appreciate it. Likewise, likewise, my friend. And uh, guys, uh, in closing, uh, like Bob said, if you want to find out more about the Gideons, um, we've got his email address um, in the show notes. So connect with him, get more information and uh, um, challenges to be obedient. Listen and be obedient. If God's calling you to get engaged, get engaged. Don't sit on the sidelines. So guys, uh, that's a challenge today. And uh, as always, you're loved, you're sent. Get out of here, go have some fun, do something good. <laughs> and uh, we'll catch you on the next go round. Be good. God bless.